devotional reading that our brother read before Sunday school, Psalm 77, I believe it was, um, was not the devotional reading that was uh, suggested in our quarterlies, and I'm not sure exactly why he chose that one, um, and I'm not one speck critical of him. Uh, I just wasn't sure how that related to the Sunday school lesson, but it certainly did relate to the message. And so uh, I believe the Lord leads in some of those ways. In that um, devotional reading, maybe you don't remember, but uh, the psalmist was talking about all of his troubles in the beginning of the psalm. <clears throat> and uh, he was looking at himself and all of his troubles and his trials and problems. And But then in the last part of the psalm, his focus is on the Lord. As our brother pointed out, the first part it was I, 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 I. The last part is you, your, you, your. Talking about the Lord. <clears throat> How do we handle the trials, the difficulties of life that come to us? I'm sure many of you face and have faced difficulties, trials. Maybe we haven't faced persecution like some in the world are facing, physical persecution. And yet we do face pressures from the world all around us, spiritual pressures. How do we, how do we look at these difficulties, these trials, these pressures, these so forth. Or maybe it's a friend of ours who is going through difficulties, some real trials. What do we say to them? How do we help them? How do we encourage them? That's difficult sometimes to know what to say and how to say it and etc. Recently at our little congregation, Caswell, we <clears throat> looked at part of the first chapter of First Peter, and you may turn there. First Peter chapter one, the first part of the chapter. And it was a blessing to me it was a blessing to me personally. It was, um, uh, what should I say, a bit convicting to me. Um, it helped me to see that I haven't related to my own difficulties and trials in the, in the best ways, always. And um, it, it was just a blessing to me. And I'd like to look at this this morning. <clears throat> This, uh, the writer 
Peter, fisherman Simon was first a disciple of John the Baptist, but then Jesus called him to be his disciple, and, and Jesus named him Peter. His former name was Simon, but Jesus named him Peter, which meant a stone. Now this Peter that Jesus called, um, someone has described him as energetic, enthusiastic, impulsive, <clears throat> impetuous, a natural-born leader, and with a good deal of human nature. And I think that's uh, pretty descriptive of the Peter that we knew as one of Jesus' disciples. But as a stone, he had strong convictions, and he had courage, and he had boldness. But the writer of this epistle that we're looking at this morning is not the same man. Yes, the same body, but not the same spirit. The man that, the, the Peter that preached on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people found the Lord, he was a whole different man from what he had been as one of Jesus' disciples earlier. But that was just the beginning of Peter's new life. And after another 30 years of walking with the Lord and growing in his Christian life, by the time that he wrote this letter, I think he was even a much, um, much more directed by the Holy Spirit, a much meeker man, and um, his focus, I believe, was more and more on Jesus and less and less on Peter. This letter was written in the first verse or two, in the first verse. To the pilgrims, I'm, I'm reading from the New King James, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and these were cities of Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey. And these were probably churches that Paul, Apostle Paul either started or at least visited and, and helped. And Peter is writing to these churches probably near the end of his life, near the end of Peter's life, we think. And um, he was writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And these were very difficult times. These were times of, of real persecution of the church. Um, it may have been, I'm not sure exactly, it may have been a little bit right before the days of Nero, uh, the very cruel dictator of Rome. But nevertheless, it was in times of persecution. And because of the persecution, the believing Jews, um, especially, 
many of them fled from, from Palestine, from uh, what we know as Israel, to out, out to these uh, far-flung communities, some down to Egypt, some over to Babylon in Mesopotamia. And um, so there were, there were these believers that were scattered all around uh, into other countries, other areas. So Peter is writing this letter to them. They had experienced persecution. They were, they were in very troublous times, trials, fiery trials. We don't know what all they were, but... Um, things that you and I would not want to experience. <clears throat> so what does Peter say to them? What would you say to people? If you were writing a letter to people that were enduring uh, very, very harsh persecution, troubles, trials, testings of their faith, what would you say to them? You know, I could feel like saying, you know, I'm, I'm really, really sorry. I'm just so sorry for you, I mean, for what you're experiencing. Uh, I know it must be hard. Um, Peter didn't do that. Now, I'm jumping ahead of the story a little bit. We'll see what Peter wrote. But Peter didn't write that. What did Peter write? Let's look at it. <clears throat> well, in the first verse, he's writing to pilgrims. Who are pilgrims? Pilgrims are... A, a pilgrim is a resident foreigner. Some, somebody who is temporarily residing in this... temporarily living in this place, <clears throat> in this country. Um, but he's a citizen elsewhere. The Bible tells us that we should be pilgrims. We're just temporary residents here. But we're citizens of another country. And um, we're away from home. We're just living temporarily in this world. Is that your experience this morning? In a very real way, is that your experience? Or are you very settled and established and firmly a part of, you know, a citizen here. <laughs> and that's a question that we can each search our own hearts and lives. How do we look at that? Or do we realize very much that I'm just not at home here. I don't belong here. <clears throat> My home is somewhere else. So he's writing to pilgrims. And these Jewish people, of course, were pilgrims. They were not at home. They were away from home physically, naturally speaking, because of the persecution. And in verse 2, he, he calls them the elect. The, they were elected by God. They were the elect. What does elect say to you? What does that bring up in your mind? Um, call them elect. Well, to me, it's... They were special. They were chosen. They were chosen out of the group, 
out of a group. Out, out, you know, they were chosen out. They, they were special. They were elect. <clears throat> and we find in verse 2, they were elected by God. They were sanctified by the Holy Spirit and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we find the Trinity here. And I, I like that. Chosen by God, elected by God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we go on to verse 3, and this starts into the main part of what we're looking at this morning. And the Apostle Peter just sort of, uh, in a sense, kind of bursts out with, with an exclamation of joy. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Does that sound like, oh, I'm so sorry. I know you are going through an awful lot. I feel for you. The Apostle Paul is bursting forth with joy, inexpressible joy. He says it's a joy that I, I can't even put into words. Now, was he oblivious to the fact that they were really suffering? No, he wasn't. I don't think so. He knew that they were suffering. Was he not feeling with them? Oh, I think he was. I think he felt their pain. I think he had been through suffering too. But he wasn't going to dwell on that. He wasn't going to just wallow around in the mire and the dirt of, I shouldn't use those words maybe, but you know, just wallow around in the, in the suffering and the trials. He was rising above that. He was saying, look what God has done for us. Now, let's go back and let's look at these verses a little more. Verse 3. <clears throat> what is there to be so elated about in the midst of suffering? Well, a living hope. A living hope. And God's mercy. This hope that we have. And you've heard this before, but I'm going to just tell you again. This word hope in the scripture means more than just, well, I hope that it's not raining tomorrow. 
uh, or I hope that it doesn't snow some more, or I hope that whatever. <laughs> um, no, it is a, an expectation. We are expecting something without doubt. The biblical word hope has that idea. And so we have this living expectation. And we have that because of God's mercy, there in verse 3, and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what does that have to do with it? Well, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about the fact that Jesus was the first fruits of those that rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore we can expect to rise from the dead someday if we die. And if Jesus comes first, well, we won't have to experience that. But we, will, we can expect to rise from the dead with new bodies someday. Jesus was first fruits. And so because Jesus rose again, we have this living hope. This hope of someday um, being in bodily form in glory. And so, <clears throat> and this is all because of God's great mercy. The older I get, and I look back on my life, the more I see um, times that I failed, my shortcomings, and so forth, I'm more and more grateful for God's mercy. God's mercy toward me. You know, some of those times that I wasn't living for him like I should have, God could have cut me off at that point. But God had mercy on me, and by the way, on you too. And because of God's mercy, we can have this hope, this living hope for the future. <clears throat> Let's turn our songbooks to number 78. Number 78. <clears throat> There's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in his justice, which is more than liberty. In the second verse, there is welcome for the sinner and more graces for the good. There is mercy, there it is again, mercy with the Savior. There is healing in his blood. I'd like for us to sing the first two verses of this song. Oh, oh, there's a wideness in God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in His justice which is more than liberty. There is welcome for the sinner 
Moving on, then. <clears throat> Verse 4. What is this living hope? Well, we've already talked a little about that. Verse 4, he says, he talks about an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. An inheritance. Some of us in this life uh, receive... Uh, an inheritance, and some of us don't. Um, maybe some receive a great big inheritance from their parents. Others maybe receive nothing. Um, we all can have an inheritance, though, to come. He's talking about the eternal inheritance here and was mentioned earlier in our service here, being heirs of God. We, we can look forward, this, this anticipation, this expectation, this hope. He, talks, he says here an inheritance, and then three things. Incorruptible, that is, it's imperishable. It doesn't perish, uh, doesn't rot, doesn't get old. It's uh, undefiled, it's pure, it's perfect. And it doesn't fade away. What more could you want? <laughs> this kind of an inheritance. And to these people who were suffering and going through difficult times, Peter is saying, look what is to come. There's this grand, glorious inheritance that will never fade, that will never rot and decay and, and so forth. This is what the future holds. And then he ends up, verse 4, reserved in heaven for you. <clears throat> it's reserved. This inheritance is reserved for me and for you. It's being kept for me. That's special. <laughs> That's special. And then not only that, but in verse 5, he says, and we are kept, and I'm going to add a little here, <laughs> we are kept for it. <laughs> the inheritance is being kept for me, and I am being kept for it, for that day when I can receive it. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I understand that in, I don't know the original Greek language, but I understand that in the Greek, the word kept is sort of a military term. That is, it's being guarded uh, like in a, in a fortress. Um, it is really being kept, guarded for me, for me, this inheritance. It's just waiting, waiting until the time that Jesus comes again and then we will get, we will receive our inheritance.
And it sounds as though this inheritance is all ready. It's been prepared. It's just sitting there waiting. Waiting for me to get there. A comfort to these people who were suffering persecution. And a real comfort to us also, it can be. And so then in verse 6, no wonder he says, In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though, yes, maybe you are going through some difficulties. Maybe you are going through persecution. Maybe you are uh, really facing some hot trials. But he says, we can rejoice because of looking beyond at what is laid up and ready for me. And then in verse 7, um, he says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than, gold, precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think what he's saying here is your faith in, in, in the Lord is being tested, just like gold is tested in the fire to see that it is pure, to see that there's no impurities in it. It is tested. And we are being tested, Peter says, to see if, we, if our faith is solid, to see if it is genuine, to see if it is real. We go through trials and difficulties and so forth. How are we going to respond to them? It's a test of our faith. And he says, if you come through these trials, this persecution, um, it, let's see, how does he say it here? And your faith is, is determined to be genuine, then you will receive praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your future, our future, will be that of praise and honor and glory. If we come through the trials and the difficulties of this life with a genuine faith. Verse 8, whom having not seen you love. And then he goes on. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, that's our faith, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This faith in our Lord is, someone has said, love is the fruit of that faith, and inexpressible joy is the result. It all hinges on our faith, our trust in him. Verse 9, he says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What does this mean? What he's talking about this inheritance, this future, 
great future, wonderful future, this future inheritance of, of praise and honor and glory and so forth. And receiving the end of your faith, again, in the Greek, I understand, it has the idea of now I'm getting it and I'm grasping it and carrying it as a prize. So maybe we can use children as an illustration, but, you know, if they know that something is coming, they're going to be given a special prize that they are just so anticipating. And finally you give it to them and they grasp it and now I've got it. And that's the idea of these words here. Receiving the, the result of our faith, that is the salvation of our souls. And you, you may say, well, I thought I, I, I received salvation now. Yes, partially. But our completed salvation is yet to come. When we will be uh, saved, not only our sins are forgiven and taken away and all of that. I don't mean to be diminishing that. But someday it'll be even the salvation of our bodies where we will have new uh, spiritual bodies, new uh, eternal bodies. And, um, and then our salvation will be complete when we don't have to deal with the old nature anymore and, and all of the things of this life. Then our salvation will be complete. And I think that's what he's talking about here. The, uh, when we receive this prize, the finished, final salvation of your souls. Now in verses 10 through 12, he's saying that the Old Testament prophets prophesied, well, let me read these verses because I didn't read them yet. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So we have in these verses, it, it talks about the prophets. They inquired and searched diligently, searched carefully to, to know, to understand what they were writing about. The prophets in the Old Testament wrote about Christ and his coming and, and, and you know, salvation through Christ and, and so forth. But they also were, were inquiring or were, uh, maybe we would say, studying and, and thinking and wondering, what is this that I'm writing about? And we might think that is a bit strange. Why were they writing about it if they didn't understand it? Well, it's another proof of inspiration of the scriptures. God moved through his Holy Spirit and told them what to write even if they didn't understand what they were writing. But this whole plan of salvation through Christ and what Christ 
uh, did, was, was going to do, looking ahead, the Old Testament prophets, what he was going to do for mankind, they didn't fully understand. They hadn't experienced it personally. And so they didn't fully understand what this was all about. And so they searched, inquired, what is this? The full, they, didn't, they wanted to know the full meaning of what they were writing about. And they were writing, um, he talks here as though they were especially writing these prophecies for us who now are on the other side of the cross or on the other side of Christ, they were back before Christ. Now we who are on the other side after Christ and we can experience this salvation through Jesus. Um, these prophecies were for us. Now we understand. We can go back and we can understand better what those prophets were saying since now we can know Jesus. <clears throat> then in the last part of verse 12, right the last, uh, the very end there, things which angels desire to look into. Not only the Old Testament prophets are searching and studying what this great salvation is all about, but even the angels in heaven Now this, again, this term, desire to look into, I believe in the, in the Greek was a much stronger, uh, much stronger terms than what it is in our English Bible. It has the idea of intently getting down and just really looking and trying to figure this out. It's the same words that were used when Peter and John ran to the tomb, that, you know, the morning that Jesus uh, arose, and they heard that he wasn't there. They heard that from the women. They ran to the tomb and they stooped down and they peered inside. What's going on in there? Is he there or isn't he? It's the same terminology. The angels are intently looking into this thing of mankind's salvation, trying to understand it, trying to figure it out. Why do the angels not know? The angels never experience salvation. Yes, they are righteous. The, the holy angels are, not Satan's angels. But the holy angels in heaven, they are righteous. They don't need salvation. And therefore, they've never experienced salvation. And so they, they marvel at and they wonder about and they are looking into this thing of how is God working with mankind on earth and bringing about this wonderful salvation. And again, we can be a part of that. <clears throat> so in verse 13 then he says 
Therefore, he's, now he's talking specifically to these people that he's writing to. He's saying, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And that has the idea of, uh, uh, well, in the old days when they wore the long robes, uh, if they were going to be out working hard or running or something like that, exerting themselves, they, they may gather their robes up and tie a belt around it tight so it doesn't get in their way and tangle up their legs and feet as they're, you know, as they're running or whatever. We don't want to get entangled in the things of this world. Maybe we want to, but we shouldn't. <laughs> We should not get entangled in the things of this world. We should lay them aside. Gird up the loins of your mind. Don't be entangled in the things of this world. And he says, be sober. Always be on your guard. And alert to the business of servants of Christ. What is our business as servants of Jesus Christ? We need to be focused on that and not entangled in the things of this life. He says, uh, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And over in, back in verse 5, he talks about uh, being revealed in uh, in the last times, and let's see, there was another place it talked about, uh, oh yes, in verse 7, the last of verse 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so over and over again here in this passage, he's talking about when Jesus returns, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, when he comes again and we can be with him, and so forth. And so again, in verse 13, he's talking about uh, our hope, our expectation the glorious return of Christ and the receiving of our inheritance. And then he goes on in verses 14, 15, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And so he's calling us to holiness. And as I said a bit ago, to <coughs> be faithful servants of God instead of being entangled in all the affairs of this life. And so, I'd like to ask us this morning, do we appreciate the salvation that can be ours? Do we appreciate that enough? Are we like Peter, who is saying we, we should think about our great salvation and the coming final sal completed salvation and our inheritance, and it should give us inexpressible joy, a kind of joy that we just can't find words to express? Is that our experience? Or do we just think of those things once in a great while, like Sunday morning when the preacher talks about it? <laughs> or do we appreciate our salvation? Do we think of it often? 
or are we just sort of ho-hum about it? And then what about when we face the trials, difficulties of <coughs> daily life on this earth? And I'm preaching to myself this morning, too. I've been through some difficulties the last while. And it's, it's not always easy to just trust the Lord like I would like. And I want to do better. What about you this morning? What do we do when we face these difficulties and trials of life? Do we bemoan them? Do we grope around moaning and groaning and so forth? Or do we rejoice in the Lord? Do we have that kind of firm expectation that one of these days I get to receive this inheritance that will be glory. Where's my focus? What am I looking at? What am I focusing on? The prophets of old and the angels desire to know and to look into these things with an intense desire. And we can experience it. We have, most of us have experienced it. What do we think of it? What is our attitude? Do we know that joy? And so I hope that we can be encouraged this morning. <clears throat> to thank God, to rejoice in what he has done for us, even through the hard times of life. Let's turn to number 292. Two hundred ninety two. We'll just sing the first stanza of this song. Oh, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the sun.
Brother Rowland, do you have a song for us? God be with you till we meet again. No me. Mm -hmm.